One of my favorite things about doing this podcast is every once in a while, a longtime friend agrees to be a guest, and today's show is one of those days. I've known Timothy Hogan for roughly 11 years, and I feel the level of comfort in recording this episode is abundantly clear. Tim is an incredibly talented photographer, woodworker, and one of my favorite people to surf with, though it doesn't happen nearly as often as I'd like. We discuss his journey from growing up in Connecticut, where he failed as a middle school saxophone player, to leading the charge to relocate to California and convincing several friends to do the same, mainly in the name of surfing. As a result, there's some surf chat, and it's certainly safe to say there's a good amount of nerdy photography chat, as well as some good car talk, Volkswagen vans specifically. We wrap up the episode discussing Tim's parents, including his mom, who does CrossFit. It's always great to spend some time with Tim, and I'm stoked to share a glimpse into his life and our friendship, so I hope you enjoy it. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. So we um, were talking about breakfast a moment ago, and you had chicken... Some version of bread that your mother makes. Yeah, with like eggs and almond flour and flaxseed and and that's an intense bread. It's really good. Okay. Yeah. Um, but what was the other thing? Sauerkraut. Sauerkraut. Love me some sauerkraut. I I think sauerkraut. I think hot dogs or sausages. You, rather. Yeah, you would be right. You would be right. But chicken. Uh, yeah. Just is just that like German? A, I don't know. I think it's just just. Haphazard is what it sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> kind of. But so somehow it sounds really, really weird. But like together, it's all really good. Cool. Yeah, I love it. Timothy Hogan, welcome to the Standard H podcast. Happy to be doing this. This is my first. So uh, I um well give me a little bit of slack. Hey, well you got all the slack you need, man. Um, you have graciously hosted me the last several days here in Ojai, California, which is, for those who don't know, it's between sort of Ventura and Santa Barbara, but inland 20 minutes. Yeah, about 20 minutes up the hill. Yeah. Uh, gorgeous, gorgeous country. Um, I took an amazing drive yesterday up 33. That road is magical. Yeah, I'll be sharing those photos via Instagram Probably for weeks, if not months. I took I, I took a hundred photos. So we're sitting out here on your patio, uh, drinking beer. The sun is setting. I'm fairly certain people can probably hear the aviary behind us, which is literally just your trees. It's not really an aviary. Yeah, it's the the oak tree aviary. It's not bad though, right? Yeah, it doesn't get much better than this. You grew up in Connecticut. I did. What what part of Connecticut? A small town called Ellington, so um, north, kind of northeastern part of the state. Um, I say small, like ten thousand people or so. Oh wow! So the town I grew up in was ten thousand when I was born. Yeah, and now it's like a hundred and eighty thousand people. Jeez. Yeah, I know Ellington's grown. I don't think that much. It's probably twenty, maybe. Um, but it's funny moving from a a small town, going to New York City, going to Santa Monica. And then ending up in a smaller town than where you grew up. Well, I was going to say, how many people live here? There's 8,000 in like Ojai proper. Somewhere about that. And I only know that from the sign on the way in. <laughs> it's not large. I went for a bike ride this afternoon and it was just, 
I mean, yes, there were cars, but in and out of these neighborhoods, hardly anybody. Yeah, the neighborhoods are really quiet. There's so many streets that I have not even been down. The main drag there, Ojai Avenue, is a thoroughfare, to say the least. That's really busy. How many years were you in Santa Monica prior to this? Five or six. Okay. What made you come here specifically? Um, I think like everybody, when I decided I wanted to get out of Santa Monica because it was just too busy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after speaking of busy, you know, living in New York, went to Santa Monica. It obviously seems a lot slower. And then at some point in Santa Monica, I lived uh, on Hill Street, um, right off of Lincoln, and at some point it was like, oh my God, this is chaotic. And you don't really, it kind of, the chaos kind of sneaks up on you. You yeah. don't really realize how busy it is. And then at one point I was like, oh my God, I got to get out of here. And I had, uh, I had spent a summer in Maine, in Midcoast, Maine in 2015. Okay. Uh, I went to woodworking school there. That's right. And uh, I had, I had barn envy. So all these beautiful homes in Maine, I swear half of them had barns. That's probably an exaggeration, but it seemed like that to me. Loved, loved that kind of like quiet type thing and realized that Santa Monica was too busy. And then like everybody in Santa Monica, I was like, well, I'm going to move to to Topanga. So when I was driving up here a couple days ago, it, Topanga immediately sprung to mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're going up that, that windy mountain road and, and it kind of has some of those, uh, some of those same vibes. Um, but I was going, I was looking in, in Topanga and I knew I wanted some space, some more space. I love space. I love being able to see out to infinity, right. you know. So seeing the mountains here and all that kind of stuff was I, I, lo- I love a, I love a view. And um, a lot of the places in Topanga were really small, really just compact, and and some of them had views and whatever. But it just wasn't working. And so I started kind of like expanding my my scope and where I was looking. And then also I was like, Oh, is it Ventura? And, but again, there wasn't the space there thing. And then I'm like, Oh, I was like, Oh, okay. I mean, I'd been up here once or twice, but I didn't really know it. I knew like people loved it. And I wasn't really like, and to be honest, I didn't really love it when I started looking. It just was this kind of like, it's close enough to LA for the business. It's close enough to the ocean it's removed enough and it's a little bit more space. Right. So it was like a little Venn diagram of like characteristics and Ojai was kind of like in the middle. Right. We'll get into some of that. So let's back up just for a second though. Who was Tim in high school? Oh, damn. Um, bit of a dork, bit of a, a bit of a band dork. Actually, I played tenor saxophone in high school. No kidding. Sax. Yeah. yeah. I was awful at it. I never practiced. I just wanted to go on the trips. We had a really good band. I know it was clarinet, but I just think of Ferris Bueller's Day Off where yes. he's like playing. He goes, never had one lesson. Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's immediately what I yeah, saw the, when you said I never oh, practiced. It was, it, was, it was abysmal. I was so bad, and I never practiced. So in middle school when I started playing saxophone, I had a loner saxophone from the school. I sucked at it. <laughs> it was awful. What to, okay, so you were you were practicing yep. or lack thereof yep. saxophone. Yep. But were you into jazz or anything? Like why saxophone? I have absolutely zero idea. Well, interesting. So what was like the kind of music you were into then those years? 
I think everybody goes through a, a musical arc as they kind of find their find their way. I think the first I think the first tape I ever bought previous to buying tapes I think was recording tapes that I got from the library by holding a speaker up uh, by holding a microphone up to the speaker of my parents' stereo and like getting all the background noise and being like, "Mom, shut up, I'm recording." No kidding. Yeah. Yeah, it was a horrible movie. So writer. I mean, most people would do like the tape deck thing. We didn't have that. We had a radio. we had a record player and a and a tape deck. Right. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was I was not very good at bootlegging apparently. And um so other than like Weird Al Yankovic and stuff like that that you like when you're <laughs> when you're young. I think the first tape I ever had was uh was Dire Straits Brothers um, in Arms. Money for Nothing? Right. Yeah. I I love still love it to this day. Mark Knopfler. And then I got some, uh, I got Paul Simon Graceland from an aunt for Christmas. So and you I, had kind of mature taste at an early age. I Yeah, and then I remember bringing home from a friend of mine, I brought home Misfits. Okay, now we're Sex talking. Sex Pistols. Yep. And Violent Femmes. Yes. And um, don't think my folks were too stoked with that assortment of... The Violent Femmes. I just remember being in fifth grade... And I would, so my friends had older siblings the same way I did. Ah, okay. So you'd always get like your inappropriate music from your older siblings. Yes, right? I got it from my friends. Yep. So like Violent Femmes came through my buddy Mike Wagner's older brother. I was listening to like, you know, Motley Crue and, which wasn't like inappropriate, but Just it was, bad. it was certainly above my like six year old status. <laughs> oh, this is at six years old? Yeah. When I was like six, I was listening to like, Poison and Motley Crue, the Beastie Boys album came out. <sighs> you know, Licensed to Ill. I, uh, yeah. Oh my God, I've got memories. But it was of all because I had a brother four years older than I was. Well, yeah, yeah. So he was ten, which still is kind of teetering on inappropriate. Yep. Um, Motley Crue at six. Yeah, I think you didn't think... turn into a de- degenerate. It's amazing. Well, depends who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, okay, so those were high school years. Where did yep. you go to undergrad? I went to Syracuse. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I did uh, photography, and then I did a minor in marketing at Syracuse, which was... Oh, that's a killer yeah. combo, though. It was good. It was a good... Um, I loved college up there. It was it, it was really fun. I got to focus on photography. I got to, to just dive in headfirst. You know, teachers were just kind of like, just go do your thing. It was great. So is that when you picked up a camera for the first time or were you always dabbling as a younger kid? I had had exposure, um, pun intended, um, to it. I think in middle school was the first time. We had a dark room in middle school. Um, And my next door neighbor across the street, Adam, he was into developing film and stuff, but I wasn't really into it. I think I had like a little... I think I had a like a Kodak Instamatic or something like that. Did you ever do like the pinhole camera in school? You know, we did. We had a a program and when I was in elementary school, we did the the pinhole camera and the camera obscura where they did the the pin in the wall and it would do the upside down. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I guess that would have been my first exposure to it to use that word again. Um, right, right. But what was your first camera, the Instamatic though? Yeah, I think I had a little like 126 Instamatic cool. thing at some point. Couldn't tell you where those pictures are, although that would be kind of fun. They were probably shit, but So, um, I didn't 
have, I didn't know. Well, actually my buddy Steven majored, I think in photography for you. What is that experience? Do they give you cameras? Do you have to come with your camera? Like instead of buying books, you buy a camera. Like what, how does that work? Yeah, we had to, we had to come with one. I think I bought a Nikon 8008 or something like that. Okay. Um, obviously back in the film days cause I'm old now. And, um, I think earlier than that, I had had my dad's old Canon AE-1. I have the same camera still. Really? Yeah. That got stolen when we were snowboarding one day. That was a bummer. Oh, but, man. Um, um, so you had, to, you, had to, you had to go with a camera that had manual modes and whatever, which is great. Um, and they had equipment, but it was... <laughs> Syracuse was a funny place. You know, like... They had this like great studio space, a ton of outdated equipment, even for the day, right? Like old Speedatron packs and all this old stuff. And like, yeah, you could borrow an icon lens, but it was an old one. And oh, they had a couple of really, really good pieces of equipment, but like they wouldn't let anybody use them. Right. Of course. They, a, they yeah, they had this studio space. They probably had this, oh, it was big. It was probably a couple thousand square feet with like, you know, three or four bays. And I kind of weaseled my way into getting more access than I had as an undergrad. I wasn't supposed to have access and I kind of like got my way and was just experiment and just work for hours in there. So were you shooting different speeds of film at that time or were you just like, screw it, I'm just shooting 400 the whole time? Like what, what was... It was, it was all over the place. Like back in, back in the day, you know, I think they, they obviously started you out in black and white. We did okay. very little color stuff. Why is that you think? Because you could, you know, you could process it yourself and, and you could do the prints yourself and you got into color later, which I think was really good. Um, I think it's a shame that they don't, um, that that's not part of it um, these days, you know, right. they, you know, getting rid of dark rooms and putting in computers instead. And, and uh, I don't think you learn the same way. Yeah. You know, I, I feel like the learning process of photography is like... Uh, I don't know, wakeboarding or snowboarding mm. where like learn how to do a 180 first right. and then a switch 180, switch backside 180, you know, learn the basics, learn the basics, right. Yeah. And then do the 360, then do the rodeo flip. Then, do, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Whereas like now you're just handed the rodeo flip. And I think you're handed it without any, um, there's no consequence to screwing it up right now. Right. You're, you're handed a rodeo flip with a perfect landing every time. Go for it. <laughs> you're like, oh, that's beautiful, you know, yeah. which, is, which is great. But I think there's a learning, especially I remember printing color in the, in the darkroom, which they didn't teach much color. So you had to just learn yourself. And you would go and you would be in the darkroom and we'd have these little Kodak filters that you'd you put over your eye to see the correction that you'd had to make. And if the print was too magenta, yeah, yeah, everything was the opposite. You had to do all these tests and every test you were doing cost money. Right. Right. And it costs time. And so you were forced to get good quick, get good. And you were forced to really understand color and you were really understand now. I mean, even to this day, I can look, I can, I, I can spot, you know, the subtlest color difference mm. in something because of the 
hours, and it's just the time factor spent staring at prints in the darkroom. Right. That today, you're on a computer, and you, you just hit auto color or, or whatever, and I'm not saying today is worse. It's just different. It's just and different, there's, yeah. there's a different knowledge that's ingrained in you by not doing it the manual way. Yeah. So when you minor in marketing, you yeah. said minor or was it a double it was, major? It was a minor, yeah. Minor, okay. Yeah. So clearly there's no like on-purpose overlap with photography. It's a different kind of scholastic segment altogether, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I knew it was commercial photography. So I went to school at, um, there was a couple programs at Syracuse. There was the, in the art school, but I went to the communication school. Oh, I at see. At SI Newhouse. So it was a very, it was much more around, you know, we had photography, but then you also had to do communications law and PR and writing. And so it kind of fit more in with the marketing side of things. It wasn't cool. an artistic endeavor. Nice. So what was the first gig out of college? I went to New York. I assisted um, for like about a year. Okay. Um, which like is, studio type yeah, stuff? Yeah, just different, different photographers. Um, I actually started off assisting when I was in... Um, Still in college, um, I worked at a camera store in East Hartford, Connecticut called Simons Photographic. Cool. And Mike Simons um, was, I almost hope he hears this, He's he was the, probably the best thing that ever happened to my career. Why? I was looking for a summer job, and um, I literally going through the yellow pages and called one you know, photo store in town and oh, we don't have anything. And I, uh, and I called Simon's and this woman, Anita, who was working there, answered the phone. She's like, I said, Hey, you know, whatever. I'm looking for a job. She's like, we were just talking about that. Why don't you come on in? Like they were just talking, they were just talking about needing, needing to somebody hire else. somebody. Right. Yeah. Right. And I went in and, um, it was kind of like the pro shop in town. Um, and, um, so all of the pro photographers in, you know, Connecticut, which was a lot of, you know, corporate industrial insurance, you know, corporate headshots, um, going to Pratt and Whitney and shooting jet engines and stuff like that. And so all the photographers in town were there and they would come in and buy their film. So I met all the guys and Mike had a small studio next door that I could use and he had the small rental gear area and I could, I had access to all the cameras. Sweet. So I was like a kid in a candy store. Right. So I just spent all my wages on film. Yeah. And I went next door and shot the film and then assisted the photographers who were coming in. So we did headshots and we did literally, you know, jet engines at Pratt and Whitney and, and worked for a bunch of those guys. And then my junior year in college, I assisted a guy, Jeff Licata, in New York. Uh, that was my first summer in New York. I was between junior and senior year. And um, he was a fashion photographer, really, really good really precise really like knew his shit like was he doing more editorial type stuff or was he doing more like shows like runway it was no it was uh editorial and catalog fashion basically um and he was an incredibly talented photographer so you have a lot of exposure with like still life as it were yeah still yeah. images yeah have you ever shot action Type yeah, stuff? yeah, definitely. Um, we're, and we're getting into it even, uh, even more now. I just did a oh cool. I just did a commercial for um, for Callaway Golf, um, with a motion control robot, which was just 
absolutely amazing. What does that mean? Speaking of rodeo flips. Speaking of rodeo, yeah, it's kind of like the rodeo flip of um, of so. It is a six or eight axis robot that holds a video camera. Okay. Shot on a so it's like a crazy gimbal? It, yeah, it's a crazy gimbal. There you go. It's uh, Picture one of those uh, robots that they use uh, in car manufacturing. Sure. Oh, right. With, with like the arm. The arm. Right. Yeah, yeah, it can but articulate. With a camera attached to it. No kidding. And so it allows us to do really precise, um, repeatable moves that you would never, ever be able to do by hand. We were shooting this uh, this line of putters for Callaway Golf, and um, it was, I'd always wanted to use, like I, I, I knew it was there, I knew it existed, but we had never done a spot, and so so we got called on to do this. I was like, oh, this would be amazing in motion control. How and long have those things been around? They've been around for, it's gotta be a fairly recent development, right? Let's say five or six years. Okay. You know, the the really, you know, ambitious ones. And I think they're, you know, like everything, they're coming down in price, you know. And by down in price, I mean, I think this thing's about $150,000. But great guys at the studio called Ms. Robot, in, uh, they're in downtown. And uh, they've got this amazing robot and this track. And it was just, it was a really, really cool experience. And it was a really, it was the first time shooting motion that I was like, oh, I get this. So you shot that downtown LA. Yeah. Okay, so let's let's back up just for a quick sec. Yeah. So you're assisting. When did you kind of strike out on your own, or like, what was that like? If you want to skip through <laughs> it, that's fine. Yeah, no, it's cool. I know. I think it was a funny story because I was um, I was in New York about a year, and um, I was working freelance for a bunch of photographers, and uh, I was uh, assisting a photographer, Elon Rubin, uh, who's a fantastic still life photographer. I don't know how I met Elon, but anyways, was was freelancing there. He was a incredible photographer and gave us a lot of, as assistants, gave us a lot of. We had you know very strict you know things we had to follow. The standards of quality were really high. It was back in the film days, so. So, um, like, give me an example of like what that would be like. Like, what's what what are the rules to play by? We were. You know, you're trying to be, or you are being creative, but you're being precise at the same time. So we were shooting, back in the day, we were doing everything on 4 by 5 and 8 by 10 inch film, mostly. Wow. So each time you hit the shutter on 4 by 5 it was a, you know, it was a $20 commitment. Each time you hit the shutter on a 8 by 10 inch piece of film was a 40 or $50 commitment. No kidding. So you had to get it right. Well, I mean, as somebody who, you know, teeters on the line of OCD, like yeah. I can certainly appreciate that mentality. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're dealing with, well, you guys were kind of in controlled environments though, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, it was, mo it, was mo it was a lot of still life and some beauty. Because like if you're shooting nature shots or like landscapes, like... You can still do it. Like we, I would, uh, uh, but like $40 a clip and the light's not right. Like you're screwed. You have to get the light right. Yeah. 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 We did, um, I worked with another photographer, Chris... His last name will come to me. And we would shoot 8x10 on location. You know, I remember doing a, a Thanksgiving Martha Stewart shoot. Oh, his The fact that I can't remember his last name. He was also super talented. But yeah, that was all 8x10 on location. You know, nature, people, whatever. Uh, entirely different um, workflow and whatever. Right. But um, with Elon, we would... 
uh, you would shoot, you know, so it's sheets of film. It's not a roll. And we would shoot with different color filtrations over the lens. Like when I say precise, you would shoot with no filter and then you would shoot with maybe a little bit of a cyan filter and maybe a little bit of a magenta filter. And it was based on the emulsion of the film, like the lot of film that you had and you tested with the lab. And it was like, we're talking tiny little differences. Borderline unpredictable too, yeah? We would do so much testing to make it as predictable as we could. We would use the same lab that we trusted. We would use the same batch of film. You buy cases of film of the same lot, and then you'd get the color filtration that worked with that film. And then you would shoot exposure brackets up and down, and then you would place all of the the, the four correct, um, c- perfectly exposed pieces of film in a binder, and that would go to the client. Like the the level of the, the the level of precision that you had to have to be a professional at that time was mind boggling. Well, isn't like a hip thing to do now to is to like buy like the oldest film you can find? Yeah, and like, ooh, this might be have expired. It be all fucked up and like yeah, and weird and, yeah, yeah, and like yeah. cool colors. Yeah, but this was the opposite. This was it, like yeah, no, exactly. This was like you were being highly paid. Um, you know, working for you know top brands and they were paying especially in that day a dump load of money right and the expectation of quality and the expectation of quality and precision and all that kind of stuff like trickled down so like elon was being held to a really high level so us assistants were being held to a really high level as well so what brought you to la from new york then because you could have easily stayed in new york right easily stayed in New York is I was just, oh man. Rat race? Rat race. I worked my ass off. I mean, I mean, what is it? Five, maybe six o'clock now? Six o'clock in New York. Currently? Yes. Right? Six o'clock. 6.30. 6.30 in New York, I was just getting started. You know, it was every day until 10, 11 at night, you know, especially when I had my own place, like, you know, for a workaholic, New York is a bad place to be. Well, I feel like, and who was I talking to recently? I was just having a conversation with somebody recently about how it's almost like a competition of like who can work the latest and who can work. (laughs) And, and, oh, well, it's a weekend. So of course I got some work I got to tie up. Right. You know, there, the, there is no semblance of Work-life balance. No, but that's what you were there to do. Right. You weren't. You don't go to New York for work-life balance. Right. 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 You it's, go it's to New grind. York to to do your thing, and I'm yeah. really I'm really happy that I did that at that time. Yeah. Um, worked my butt off, learned a lot, and then I think at some point in New York, you wake up one day and you go, "Wait, why am I doing this?" If you haven't heard episode one of the Standard Age podcast, then let me tell you about my friend Tim Jackson. As owner of Passion Fine Jewelry, Tim and his team specialize in fine jewelry, as well as some of the finest independent watch brands available. I'm talking about Gronfeld, Habring, Kudoki, Roger Smith, Roman Gauthier, Sarpaneva, the list goes on. This staff at Passion Fine Jewelry is literally made up of friends and family, so you will feel right at home if and when you visit. 
If California is out of reach, you can absolutely email or call the shop and they'll get you sorted. Visit passionfinejewelry.com for more information. As you all know, I'm a huge fan of using the right product for the right job. And like many of you, I appreciate products with a story. That's why I drive a Volkswagen GTI. It's a hot hatch with heritage. It's also why I'm into specific watches like my Tudor Black Bay. And that's exactly why I'm a fan of the indie accessory brand Contonement. Contonement makes a utilitarian cloth they simply call a kerchief. It's smaller than a standard bandana, but larger than a handkerchief, which makes it ideal to tuck in a back pocket or use as a neckerchief. I always take one on a bike ride or have one with me as a backup face covering. Not only do these kerchiefs satisfy several functions, but they look great too. Each set features illustrations celebrating icons of product design like the Omega Speedmaster, the Fender Stratocaster, or my favorite, of course, a classic GTI. Follow them on Instagram at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T-C-O. Or visit them at Contonement.co. And use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off of absolutely everything in their online shop. Now let's get back to the show. Well, let's fast forward just for a quick second because you're a surfer. Yeah. So how much of that... So you started surfing at what age? I was in high school. Okay. So at this point, you're what age in New York? Mid-20s? up, Late 20s? Yeah. So... Yeah. In your late 20s, you'd already been surfing for, call it, 12, 15 yeah. years. I still suck, though, but yeah. That is not true, uh, and I will say that on the record. Uh, I I really enjoy surfing with you. I, th- I enjoy watching you surf, because you also ride longboards. Yeah, mostly longboards. And I can't ride a longboard to save my life. Like, I, I had to sell my longboard. I was really? awful. I was like, either this takes too much trying and practice... Which back to your saxophone days, not gonna do it. I either <laughs> That's how I feel about shortboarding. <laughs> well, so it's so funny because like with shortboarding, I just gravitated towards it immediately. Interesting. So it was snowboarding on water for me. Yeah, yeah. Whereas like yeah. a longboard, completely different art. Totally, totally um, different. You see the line differently. Yep. Um, you generate speed differently. Yep. Um, and I just I was shit. I, I couldn't do it. I, I was like, either I'm, I've got the weakest back foot and I feel like I've got decently strong legs. Like, yeah. I couldn't turn the damn thing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, granted, I bought like a log as well. It right. Was not yeah, a you bought some like, turnable longboard. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, so, I'm, the reason I bring up surfing in a very roundabout way was like, how much did surfing play a part in the move? In the, huge. It, it really? Huge. Okay. It was, it was, um, we would go out to uh, Montauk, sure. New York, for the for the summer. You you came out to the? Did you? No, I never no? did. And okay. in fact, okay. So for those listening, I met Timmy through our mutual friend Lindsay, who's from Ireland, and I was working at James Purse in Brentwood, right? And okay. Lindsay came in. Yep. And you know me, I'll talk to a tree. <laughs> Uh, I saw you out here doing that this morning. Yeah, yeah I was. Yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. No no alcohol. By <laughs> the. Um, and so I met Lindsay and then obviously you and I met through Lindsay and that was, God, uh, 11 years ago? Something God, like that? Damn, something time like, flies. I don't even. Oof. But um, 
so yeah, and then we've surfed in San Diego together. We've surfed in Malibu together. Um, so that played a part in moving to LA. Yeah, I mean, it was so you know New York. We got to uh, we got to Montauk, and we had a house out there with Lindsay and uh, this guy Mike Bonos and a bunch of other people. Um, we're all still friends with, and it's funny because we just watched a film the other day by the filmmaker Jason Baffa. Oh, I don't know. Uh, he did Single Fin Yellow. And, oh, okay. Right? And he also did a film called One California Day. So wasn't I thought that was a Malloy Brothers thing. I think they were in it. Okay. Yeah, and, and Tyler Hitzikian and yep. I don't remember who else. Cool. And the, yeah, 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 the Malloys, yeah, because they were up here in Santa Barbara, right? Right. Uh, one of the Malloys lives right down the street there. And um, we uh, it was some flat day. And we were in the house that we had in Montauk, and we put on one California day. And we're all sitting around the living room. There's probably 10 or maybe 10 people in the living room. And the film get, got done. And I turned around to everybody, and I said, why do we not live in California? No way. You encouraged all those I people just, to move I, We watched this movie, and I just I remember turning around, and I was like, because we were trying to make this California lifestyle into, and, and I think Montauk is as close as you get. In That's my impression, having never it's, been there. It's a magical little town. Don't tell anybody about it. Um, <laughs> it's okay. It's nobody already listens. blown up. It's fine. No, nobody listens to this podcast. No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. And, and, uh, and nearly everybody in that room now lives in California. That's incredible. Okay, so you moved to L.A. Yeah. Is that when you strike out on your own or were you doing? Oh, no. I, I mean, I um, I assisted that year in New York. I worked for Elon and um, I got really impatient. Probably my worst of something called Tim time where I just like it just needs to happen now. Right. And so I, um, I got a studio. This is flashing back to New York. I got a studio in New York, shared a studio on 29th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue. It's like about 500 square foot studio. And, you know, when we had to shoot, when we, when we shot like fashion or beauty, we had to like move furniture out into the hallway. It's hilarious. And, um, and, uh, you know, paid for it on the credit card kind of thing and was assisting, uh, during the day and then shooting at night. And I remember the last week I was assisting, I was working for Elon during the day. I don't remember what we were shooting. It was almost there. Um, and then I would go to my studio at night and we were shooting camcorders for Sony at night. And I think that week, that week, I think I worked about a hundred hours and I would go to Elon's the next morning after sleeping, like, I don't know, maybe a couple hours on the couch. And, um, we would shoot when we would shoot all that four by five film, you would fire the strobes multiple times to build up the exposure to the proper thing and sometimes you would be popping the strobes 20 times and I was standing up and I would be falling asleep while I was while I was popping the strobes and I would fucking wake up and be like, oh, which I? is ironic because they're bright ass the bright ass light had no bright your huge, face. like like boom you know the whole studio would, would like explode just like the levels just did when I did the boom there and um I'd be like Oh shit! I have no idea. I have to start over because I had no. I was that. Was that twenty? Was that seventeen? I have no idea because I fell asleep standing up doing it, <laughs> and that was my last week assisting. 
So how did Elon take it when you told him you're leaving? I think he was okay with it because he had offered me a full-time job and knew that I wasn't into a full-time job and then rescinded the job offer. (laughs) So I think it was okay. I remember taking a walk with him on the streets. He's like, yeah, I've been rethinking that. And I was like, okay, good, because I wasn't going to accept it anyways. No, that was that was that was kind of a pivotal moment though. That was like, okay, here we go. Like I'm I'm like I'm turning down full-time work with a good photographer to kind of like go out and do my thing. Sure. So then what what does get you to start your own deal? Like when did you strike out on your own? So at that point, I kind of didn't have a choice in the matter. So we, we were doing that that thing for Sony with this art director Brandon. I was like, okay, here, here, here we go, basically. Um, and I got a contract gig with Ernst and Young, the uh, yeah the, consulting the firm. consulting firm, and we did we had like a monthly contract with them, and I would do all because the, they were building up a stock library. So like, it wasn't beautiful work; it was all like, you know, globes and magnet. It was like it was like contract stock photography right. for their usage, and. Um, yeah, that was like kind of like being pretty young and out of just on your own and like, oh my God, we landed like a six-figure contract. It was really nice and got into some beauty work and still doing still life and just kind of like, you know, you're just hustling. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of feel like that's sort of the life of a, of a photographer, right? Like just kind of hustle and you're reaching out to companies mostly and like, you know, had, had you gotten to that place where companies were finding you and reaching out to you? Trying to think what the environment was at that point. Um, I got an agent early on, James Hill, who I actually met at Elon Rubin's place. Um, he was working at Art Department, um, which is a really well-known agency back in the time who was representing Elon. And um, met James there, ran into him on the street. He became my first agent. He is actually newly my agent again which is really cool so oh, i just wow. signed with his new company uh six plus one which is pretty cool we've obviously kept in touch he's like an absolute brother which is really cool so um so i got it i signed with him early on and then he uh worked worked at and I got absorbed kind of like into an agency called uh, Vernon Jolly Inc. early in the, back in the day. And they have had Herb Ritz, which is really cool. Vernon was a incredible guy, Australian guy, super well-respected, um, just gem of a person, um, his agency. And that was a pretty, that was a, that was a cool place to be. Sweet. Yeah. So then, okay. So, when you were living, okay, so when we met, yep, I know that you drove a Volkswagen. I did. Like a van, bus, van I again. That, I had that 88 Westphalia, yeah. Do you still have that? No, I sold that. When did you sell that? When you got A year and a half place? ago? Oh, no, more recent. Yeah. Okay, Yeah, cool. so I, I had it here. I missed that damn thing. Man, talk about cars. You, you like, I, you know, I, I did the upgrade path and I bought the, the Sprinter there, which is right. kind of like- I see what you do, but man, that van, I miss that damn thing. Yeah. Yep. 
Well, you, you mentioned it earlier, you went to woodworking school mm-hmm. in Maine. Yeah. What prompted that? Was it just kind of like a, I need a new hobby or was it like a... I, I have always loved building stuff. I've always loved figuring things out. I remember, you know, building a skateboard ramp in my backyard when I was in middle school, whatever. Like just, it was like hands-on building stuff was, and I've always wanted to do it. And um, I was like, no, I'm just... I'm taking a summer off. I had never done, I had done one month off for a retreat um, back in 2011. And then the summer that I went to Maine was like the first time I had taken off, you know, for a long period, like, you know, got out of college, started working, you know, did all the things. So it was the first time I like, no, I'm just going to go do this because I want to go do this. It was fantastic. Sweet. So, yeah. what what was implied there? Like, how long is that program? So, it was a three month program. Uh, wow. The school was called um, the Center for Furniture Craftsmanship. What did that cost? It's about eight grand. Okay. I think for three months. Yeah, for three months. Now, is that room and board and food and everything? No, that's just that's just the instruction. You had to go get an apartment in town. So, I got this really um, great like above garage apartment on this pond. With the dock and the Adirondack chairs out at the Emmy, it's like out of a picture. Um, and that whole coast, that whole section of Maine is like out of a picture. Yeah, it's just like you think Maine. You're like lobster hunting. Yep, there's that, and it's I, I love that. It's probably the only place. Not probably. I won't even hedge that bet. Um, that Camden Rockport area in Maine is the only other place I would live in the United States. Yeah, I have a a very dear friend of mine who just moved back to Maine. She's from there originally, yep. and she was in New York City, and she just moved back. And she who's that? Just absolutely love it. My my friend Jessica. She's huh. basically like my sister. Yeah. She hired me at James Purse. No kidding. Yep. So that's why I say she's like my sister. Yeah. Like I mean, we just I've known her since I started there in two thousand nine, and so it's been twelve years. And she's yeah. I mean, I talked to her today. And what part of Maine do you remember? I don't remember where she's from originally, but uh-huh. I think it's right outside of because um, Freeport's where LL Bean's from. Correct. But yeah, a I think bit more she's South from Coast. Portland. Okay, I think she's from Portland. Yeah, and then her folks are like twenty minutes away from the water. Oh yeah, but she's yeah. like two blocks from the marina ah. in Portland. Maine is something else. Portland's yeah. a great city. Yep. Yeah, I've never been to Maine. Ah, uh, it is, and I really want to go during the summer. I hear it's insane. It's insane yeah but the winters you know, it's like chicago also insane right right well true yeah, yeah 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 um so you so you go to woodworking school yeah three months so so was it more just a creative outlet for you or was it was it actually like a business thing or like uh, it was it was i still think when i retire i'll probably just build furniture you know i would i, would, I mean i've always wanted to I've been working on lighting designs and, and I've always wanted to design furniture. Um, I just, I love making something tangible. The, the woodworking school and the furniture building school was, was a way of, of like learning how to do it for real. Like I wanted to, a lot of photography, you know, I went to college for it, but it's a lot of like learning it on your own. Right. And I was like trying to learn some stuff on my own, like YouTube videos and stuff like that. And I was like, what? No, I need somebody to like teach me how to do a dovetail. 
Right, I was going to say the right way to do it. Show me the right way to use a table saw and da 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 da. All where did things. you where did you think you were missing the details on your own? Like, what did they teach you? Where it was like, oh, that's it was that's just, how you do it. They had great instructors. Um, Aaron Fedarko, I think I just messed up his last name. Sorry, Aaron. Um, was our main instructor, and they had a bunch of other guys who who came in and taught certain segments of it. But you're learning from experts, right? And I think the woodworking community has such a great um, culture of teaching. I generally dislike social media. Right. However, the woodworking community on Instagram is one of the most generous sharing. It's incredible. Like people yeah. are not like, oh, like uh, don't don't. The, I'm not going to yeah, give away not my hiding. secrets. They're yeah. like. Here's this crazy thing I just figured out how to do. Everyone else go for it and use it. It's a really generous community and I think it's it's um it's one of the I think it's one of the best things on Instagram. I have a friend Kyle Sabre. Mm-hmm. He's based in Carlsbad actually. Okay. Um his stuff is unreal. Like I've been trying to get him on the podcast for well over a year. Kyle, you should do it. So I need to, uh, yeah, just keep hitting him over the head with the microphone, I yeah. guess. But um, yeah. I'll, I'll connect you guys. He's, he's incredible. I lo- love that. I don't spend enough time doing it. That was one of my, actually, my favorite things about quarantine. Right. I built the first piece of furniture. I did a coffee table um, that, that's in the main house there. Um, first piece of furniture I built since, since going to wood school. Wow. You know, it was like, Oh my God, suddenly I have the time to do what I want. Right, right. I had all this stuff in the barn. I had just gotten the storage containers and um there's probably too much information, but I moved all of my my woodworking stuff was in the where the photo studio is now. Moved all that stuff into the main barn and then set up, you know, painted the photo studio room and, and got that all going and, and um and uh yeah, knocked out my first piece of furniture in ages. That's great, man. So you mentioned Callaway. Yeah. How do you categorize your style of photography? Oh, wow. Or can you? Because I would still say that you capture things in that sort of still life way. Like you did the Finn Project, which mm-hmm. I actually posted on my stories uh, yesterday, two days ago. I saw that. Um, I actually bought a print of yours years ago um, where you... Well, why don't you tell the story of the Finn Project? How'd that come about, and how did you shoot it? So that was um, my agent at the time um, was basically like, you need a project to sink your teeth into. And I was like, okay, probably a good point. Um, I work better when given an assignment as opposed to, I'm just going to go do this for fun. Which is interesting. It goes into, there's a problem to solve. Right. Somebody gives a problem to solve, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll totally do that, but... I'm I'm not you know, whatever. So um, I had started years ago when I was in New York. Uh, I had wanted to do a line of T-shirts, which I never did, um, and somehow it landed on fins. I don't have I don't have those designs anymore. I have no idea why. And then so that I remembered that I had wanted to do that, and you know, being a surfer and being new in California. Um, I wasn't connected with the surf community at all. And I was like, oh, here we go. I can kind of 
take that little thing here, take that, you know, and like kind of put everything together. And, um, I reached out to Larry Allison at fiberglass fin company and went down to his space, um, and borrowed a bunch of fins from him and just literally dug through boxes of dusty fins up in his warehouse and, um, borrowed those and, you know, did the first round of images. And I think we ended up shooting, I don't know, maybe a hundred and 150 different fins and boards and stuff from the surfing, um, by San Onofre, um, San Clemente, Jesus, yes. So in San Clemente, surfing uh, cultural heritage, whatever. I don't know why I can't even pronounce that right now, but um, shot a bunch of boards there, and um, yeah, have those still have those prints online, and and it, it was a really really fun project. I started to do a documentary film about the Campbell brothers who created the Bonzer here in Oxnard. Um, that never, we never got funding for it. And I just kind of like mothballed that. So the, all that footage is still on hard drives up in my oh, funny. office. And, and how uh, did you, how did you shoot the fins and the boards? Was it light box style or was it? No, that was real. Um, that was straight up from all my still life days. We, um, had a white, white background and then the fin was actually floated on plexiglass. When I shot individual fins, we were shooting them from overhead, and they were resting on clear plexiglass. So, the light can, source was below and above. Yes, correct. So that way you can light the bottom independently from the top. So they're separated. So was the light directly below it, or was it, it at was, an angle? It was it, the the light was the light was. Um, Basically, we put a white piece of foam core or plexiglass on the ground, and we would light that with one light, and then we would light to the fin it. with other lights. Right. And so that way, you're able to, even on the fin itself, you get light coming through the fin, but you're able to get shadows on the fin and really sculpt. You're using light as a sculpting tool. Right. Really. Whereas if, if, if you were to turn the lights on the fin off, you actually have a silhouetted fin. It's black because there's a separation there just photo technique so taking all those like that's how we used to shoot cosmetics and all this other stuff and you're just using that to to shoot fins now so you're able to get really three-dimensional representations of the fins which was super cool yeah it's really beautiful and and with that collection uh, the print i got was i don't even remember the name of the fins it was like that kind of morphed looking fins but there was three of them and there was like a I think a, a teal one, a magenta one, and a yellow oh, one. the Doug Man football fins. Yeah, okay. Yeah. The football fins. Yeah. And those you kind of overlapped yeah. almost like primary colors, if exactly. you will. Exactly. It was it was the merging of those colors. That was one of the original, the the t-shirt designs that I did back in the day. It was the merging of those colors. It was those incredible. Those line drawings. But this is, you know, the most, most fins are translucent. So when you light them with light behind it, ta-da, they do the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Super cool. So fast forward to you today. Yeah. What are you into now and what are you shooting with? So you were, weren't you a, a Hasselblad? Yeah, I was a Hasselblad ambassador for, for years, um, which was, which was cool. Um, that was the first digital camera I bought was a, actually before that was an Imicon. Um, and then Hasselblad bought Imicon, but, um, I'm now, I was used their cameras for years and now I'm shooting with the Fuji GFX series which is 
a monster. It's insanely good. So what what are the specs on that camera so people know? It's 100 megapixels. It's a medium format camera. Um, so the chip is three or four times larger than a, a 35 millimeter. It must get hot. It's heavy, um, but it's amazing. Like it's worth every. It's incredible. Um, the files are beautiful. The stuff you're able to do with them is is incredible. Um, now, is that an ambassadorship as well? No, no. I I bought that. Um, it's the GFX 100. It's been out for a while. I bought it, and of course, two or three months later, they came out with a new version, which is lighter. And a little bit faster and like $3,000 cheaper. So what are the lens capabilities for that? They, it's a little bit more limited than you get on, on 35 millimeter based on the, based on the size. They're generally heavier, slower. Um, I'm working with three lenses right now. I have a 50, which I love. It's a small little pancake lens. Um, that's great. It's a focal length about a 35 millimeter. So Um, what kind of aperture are you talking about? That one's a slower one. I've got a, I've got a, a zoom of forty-five to one hundred zoom, and I have a one ten f two, which is a portrait portrait lens. That lens is beautiful. Nice. Um, and then I think on the shopping list um, are they have a twenty-three millimeter. I think. Oh wow, that's which wide. Is super wide. Yeah. On medium format, that's like an eighteen or probably even less. Um, and then they also have a, they have a 120 macro that I kind of get around by using, um, extension tubes. Mm-hmm. And then they have a 250, uh, super sharp. Amazing. So yeah. Um, l- love that camera. So when you're not shooting commercially, are you doing anything for fun? Do you have any other projects kind of like the Finn project? Don't have anything at this point time frame um what i do like about the new with well the new old with working with james again is um the agency uh six plus one is doing a really cool thing where where every month they give us an assignment so um i don't remember what this month's assignment is i haven't done it yet obviously um (laughs) but uh they give us an assignment to do to you know around a theme or something like that, which they'll then use for promotion and all that kind of stuff. But it's actually, I love the idea because again, going back, like I love solving problems. Right. And so just go pre go be creative. is not a problem to solve. Right. Right. It's like, here's a concept, go shoot this. Great. I can do something with that. And so I'm excited for that. Yeah. It's kind of like how long is a piece of string? Totally. Well, you, personally collect art i don't know if you would characterize yourself as an art collector but you definitely have some like really cool pieces yeah do you have any specific approach on how you collect other people's art is it more friend-based is it community-based yeah i think it's i think it's kind of friend-based um i've got a few i actually don't collect much photography i've got three what three paintings um and then two other pieces um in the uh, in the house, um, I've got one painting by my friend Jack Larue um, that I got from him when I was in New York. We did a show uh, at my space. I got a piece from him on that. Still one of my favorites. Um, 
I got a piece from a friend, Heather Chantos, who's a fantastic painter. She's now in France. Um, and then uh, Wyatt Mills, that guy, I bought that one um, from the show that we did um, Sweet. at the space. That's great. And then I've got a little, I've got a little Kandinsky line drawing that I got from a gallery in New York in trade and then uh, called R 20th century. And then um, I have a Wendell castle cloud shelf that was Wendell castle was actually a really influential figure in the uh, furniture industry um, back in the seventies. He just passed a few years ago, mm. but he did a series of pieces of furniture in fiberglass called right. the cloud series. Okay. Um, and I did the photography for those things for the gallery and I got paid in trade no and kidding. So I got one of the pieces. Sweet. So that was pretty cool. Talk about something you never would have bought yourself. But right. Yeah. So I mean, obviously, we brought up surfing a couple yeah. times. What was your first board? First board was a nineteen. I think it's a sixty-eight uh, Bing Australian foil, which is uh, still in the living room. And um, I bought it from a friend's dad, uh, my friend Sonia Fisher, back in Ellington. I bought it from her dad. For a hundred bucks, is that a single fin? School. It's a single fin. Yeah, um, kind of round, hull bottom, kind of flat tail, thick as hell. Um, and uh, it's a first board. I'm so stoked. I still have it. I think it was. I think I got the birth certificate from Bing, who always kept records of all his boards. I didn't so, know that. So you can go back with any Bing board. There's like an archive. Give him the serial serial number, and he'll tell you where it came from. Uh, and I was bought from a surf shop in Hartford, Connecticut. That's incredible. That, I mean, that's in the watch community, like having records and archives and yeah. stuff is, is like insane. What are you, what are you surfing mostly these days? I am surfing. I have a couple boards that I love. You got I, a new one recently. I got a couple new ones. Re- well, yeah, I got a, so the. I have four that are in my like, oh my God list. I have a, um. A beat to hell, um, Putnam Hilbers SOS, which stands for Son of Sam, which is kind of like the Magic Sam board that Nat Young rode in the '68 or '69. What are kind of the dims on that? It's a nine-four. Uh, it's basically a long displacement hull, really thin and foiled out. That board is insane fast. It is so fast down the line. Um, it takes this high line on the wave that I brought it to the Maldives in a trip that I did and 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 the people on the trip were like I've never seen a longboard do that it's just incre- I love that board it's incredible um I've got that one um I had a recent session on a I've got a William Dennis who's a local guy here it's an 11-1 glider oh yeah I was gonna say that's skip fry territory it's Little, you know, little day down at C Street, high tide, sitting 50 feet outside everybody. Yeah, ankle every, peelers. Getting every way if you want. Getting fun. everything early. <laughs> so much fun. Um, and then I've got a, I've got a 9-10 um, made by a guy, Zef Kerrig. It's a, his, the board name is a YYZ. It's a modern kind of like nose rider big long concave board paddles like a dream why why is is that the airport code for vancouver i don't know it sounds like an airport yeah it it does sound like an airport code that board's amazing paddles incredible and then i just bought a um 
a CJ Nelson outlier, which is like a mid-length uh, seven six. That's the one I hull like a hull bottom. That thing goes so good, really fast. Um, I think I have a thing for displacement hulls. YVR. Now that I think about it, that's the Vancouver. YVR. Okay, yeah. not yep. YYZ. Nope. It's YVR. No, nope, but sounds similar. I wonder where he got that name. Actually, <laughs> that's funny. That's it. Yeah. Um, so those are my kind of like four go-tos. The that's the the current quiver. That's that's the current quiver. There's a few other ones that are kind of sitting in the sitting in the in the container there. I was up to like seven or eight boards at one point. Yep. And I have paired back to basically three. Okay. And what are you riding now? Well, I've got a five eight fish that's like the standard H board. It's a oh cool twin it's like keel. half a surfboard. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a twin <laughs> keel wooden glass on cool yeah that's great i'll show it to you yeah then i have a five nine jeff mccallum i remember that one that's so is that the black one yeah that's just like the yyz's black as hell melts wax like you wouldn't believe yeah well i had jeff redo it because i surfed the shit out of the other one like i had pressure dings i had like a knee put through it basically oh god my boards are trashed i do man this thing and i still have the original yeah okay which incidentally was jeff's personal board I remember so that board. I had bought his yeah. personal board having been ridden, um, and it was magic. It was absolutely magic. And I was just like, Jeff, I understand that this one's magic. I can't expect you to reshape the same magic. But but, but if you could. But I want the same shape and, and dimensions and et cetera. And then I have a 7-2 single fin. Cool. By none other than AJW surfboards, which is Adam Warden. I went to college with his sister. And AJW shapes for Cam Richards, who's been on tour, free surfer. I okay. don't even know his status now. But he is... I I don't know that Adam's ever shaped like a fun board or mid-length or... Yeah. You know, I mean, it is literally a Swiss Army knife. It's super thin. Ooh. Super flat. Uh huh. It's seven foot two, and I just throw the fin all the way up in the box. Yep. Keep it, it loose. It turns on a dime. Yep. It's incredible. Well, after all that, what would uh, what was your first car? A shit box. No, it really wasn't a shit box. Um, it should have been. It should have been. And as we'll as get a parent, in, we'll get into which the philosophy. Neither of us of, are. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into the philosophy of shit boxes. Um, it was a 1982 Pooh Brown. With a little bit of red uh, and a little bit of rust, Toyota Cressida, you know, good old hand-me-down car, as I think, uh, philosophically speaking, that all first cars should be. Um, and uh, got that, I think, in college. I didn't have a car in high school. Oh no, kidding! No, this was this was college. So you were riding the bus to high school? Oh yeah, or friends, or 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 whatever. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, yeah, the the hand me down, and um, it had a complete knack for losing the muffler every year. As I as I drove home from college, uh, with the car packed full of shit, uh, halfway home from Syracuse to Connecticut, and the muffler would fall off because it had rusted through in twelve months. Got it. Yep. So that was a, a it was a rust problem. It was a rust problem. Not a it's loaded so heavily that it would drag on the ground and break off. Probably a bit of both, <laughs> but more so the rust problem, I think. Amazing. Yeah. Yep. There's like something very 
I don't even know what movie would it was like the Beverly Hillbillies or something. No, it really it really was. I remember I remember driving to school with it one year with a uh, from Connecticut with a dresser on the top, <laughs> you know, straight up Beverly Hillbillies uh, dresser on the top. Incredible. I don't think that thing would go fifty miles an hour with that thing up on it. it <laughs> That's really, amazing. It was not aerodynamic nor powerful at the time. Right. Uh, yeah, that was the first car. Amazing. So, yeah. what are you driving now? I have. Um, I have, well, my wife Danielle has a uh, Subaru uh, Crosstrek, great which, car, which we love. Yeah, absolutely great car. love that thing. Um, and then I had the '88 Westfalia van, which uh, I, the Volkswagen, which I sold. Single tier. Single tier. Single <laughs> slowly, slow motion tier going down the left. Yeah, that was a drag. Um, so, so tell me, why did you sell that? It was an upgrade. You said. It was, it was, uh, so, God, with heavy heart, right? Um, so Did I you make it, money on it? Yes. I, um, I bought it for 13 grand and I sold it for 26. There so I doubled go. my money on you it. doubled your money. I doubled my money on it. So I've told people this story before and I've yep. probably mentioned it on this podcast. My logo came from a Google search of looking at Volkswagens for the the Vanagon. Yeah. So in order to build out the interior like a store, so I could go to surf spots like Swami's for example yep. with its own parking lot. Yep. Surf in sling t-shirts in the parking lot. I love it. Well, back in 2016 or whatever, your $26,000 is actually a pretty decent deal now, but some of these things in great condition were Thirty and forty thousand dollars. Oh, it was it. It's crazy. What and they I couldn't were afford that on top of no. my then car payment. Yep, yep. It all sounds like a good idea. No, I I love that van. I actually bought that. That was my second Westie. I had actually at the time I bought that, I had owned. I bought a nineteen eighty two air cooled in white. I love the white ones, man. The white ones are good. I love a white synchro. The all-wheel drive yeah, or four-wheel drive? Don't I wish. There's one There's one here in town that I love. Those things are commanding crazy prices. Oh, it's insane. It's insane. Um, so I had the 82, and then as you do, you just stay on Craigslist and eBay like a fiend. Right. And this thing popped up in, it was down in Westchester in L.A., and it had a buy-it-now price. And oh, I was eBay. On eBay. eBay Motors. And I had a... a yeah, on, and I bought it on my lunch break. <laughs> Amazing. I was like, holy Sight shit. unseen. Sight unseen. I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this. Um, and I knew it was in Westchester. Do you get like the eBay protection thing? Like, if Yeah, the there's some sour? protection there. So if it's if it's a complete dog, I, you know, I knew I had some protection. So I was just like, oh, I can't believe I'm doing this. And right, right. I was down in Venice at a studio down there at the time. I was like, boonk. I was like, holy shit. I did it, <laughs> and um, I got it, and um, it was in low mileage. It was it had eighty eight thousand miles. I knew I couldn't go wrong, you know, like because it didn't have enough miles for it to be totally screwed up. Right. And was it a California car? California so car. Right. The guy had done a bunch of work on it. He had uh, he had done some some suspension work on it. Like it was it was in it was in good shape. And then uh, what was that color called? It was like an ice blue or like silvery blue. Yeah, and it was weird because it's not delivery. It's, it's the not, journal. It's de- 
It's not delivery. It's dad. He's going to get that <laughs> He's pizza He's going now. to get that pizza. <laughs> I still feel, every time I say the word dad, I, I feel like I'm 12. Is that right? I, yeah. No, I really, like, obviously, he's still my dad, right? Obviously, I'm 40 fucking five years old. But every time I say the word, my dad is here, I feel like I'm, like, 13 again. Right. Like, you suddenly need to be on your best behavior? Yes. Right. Now, having met your dad and having met your mom, like, your parents are awesome. They're fucking amazing. You and can leave that part in. I am so... Well, I'm totally leaving that in. I am so lucky. And what's funny is I just realized I never even asked you like what they did for work. And normally every podcast I ask everybody what their parents did for work. Ah, interesting. But your dad was like an environmental protection, but for the government. Yeah, he was. He worked for the state of Connecticut for uh, I don't know how many years. He worked in um, uh, wastewater, so it doesn't really sound all that interesting. He worked right. for the DEP. Right. Yeah. But your mom, however. Yep. She was a home ec teacher. Home, uh, home, a ec, home teacher. ec teacher. Yep. I asked her yesterday or three days ago, whenever, what day is it? Uh, I asked your mom several days ago when I met her, is that like even still a profession? Like, do, do, do those teachers still exist? I actually have zero idea. What was her answer? Did she say? She's like, yeah. I was like, I don't know. Like, is it a, is it a East coast thing? Like. Kids in San Diego are not going to home ec. They're not learning how to bake pies and, and stuff. They're I don't remember handed, home ec They're getting handed rodeo flips in the, in the form of <laughs> here's cameras. Your, here's your BMW. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, anyway. <laughs> I love how we just brought that around. Yeah, It's that was just good. so crazy, man. Yeah, yeah but your your parents are the best. I, I'm, I mean, I am a lucky, lucky human being. One of the things that I give my parents the absolute most credit for is they all, wherever I was in life, there was never any pressure when I wanted to get into photography where when I wanted to go to Syracuse when I wanted to move to New York like any of those life decisions there was never a they were just super supportive they were like okay here we go I um I will agree with you or at least identify with you on that front every step of the way except for my move to California and where you had the job in California What's that? Where you had the fake job in California? Yeah, where I lied to them and told them I had a job in L.A. Details. You and, eventually found one. Well, yeah, yeah. And quickly, mind you. Well, it, there you go. I that's think it was good within enough. 72 hours. In Ow! <laughs> that's, a, that's as good as having a job. Um, yeah, but other than that, I mean, super supportive. Right? Like, that is... And I don't it know, wasn't I'm, like a monetary, like golden parachute type of no. support it was just an emotional support right like okay like you want to do okay right you know like and and that's it was that belief i guess yeah 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 absolutely and it's not like i was um very I lucky because not everybody has that no no i and 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 you know danielle my wife has had a different you know different upbringing than me and she's given me great perspective on how lucky I am to have my parents, to have them healthy, to have them, you know, visit me for a month here in California. And, and that's right. Man. Cause they're still in Connecticut. Yeah. They're still in Connecticut. You know, they're still, you know, still fit. My mom would go to CrossFit every day if she, you know, if she could, she's a, you know, I've watched her deadlift 200 plus pounds 
Yeah. You're no, yep. are you kidding? No, not at all. You've seen your mother deadlift over two hundred pounds. Yes. My mom That's not normal. My mom does Murph every year. My mom uh does uh compete at CrossFit games. Like not like like at like you know how they do the cross oh CrossFit open. Sorry. Not well, so, I, I, yeah. you're already speaking in a, in yeah. a foreign no, tongue. Yeah, no, my, my, like my, yeah, no, and, and my. But I do know what a deadlift is. Right? <laughs> That's insane, man. Yep. She's no joke. That's incredible. Well, Tim, I, look, man, I can't thank you enough for having me up here. I'd love that you're able to come up and, um, and, and, and This hang. has been insane. I mean, the weather's been insane. The views have been insane. The sunsets have been insane. Uh, the birds chirping and now sounds cr- like crickets. The crickets, yeah. Uh, <laughs> crickets and cars. Shut up, cars. Yeah. Um, and the beer is insane. The coffee's been insane. Look, I'm not trying to blow up Ojai, but I'm just saying I've had a wonderful time. I really appreciate you having me. Is there anything you want to promote? Where can people find your work? Tell, you know, what's what's going on. Yeah, so... Um uh, Instagram is at Timothy Hogan. I think Twitter is the same, but I don't do anything with Twitter. So I'm just going to just whatever you can do whatever you want there, but I'm not going to check it. Um, work is at uh, Timothy dash Um My prints are at Timothy Hogan studio. I'm still trying to figure out how to merge those two together, but that's a whole nother branding exercise. Yeah. Uh, and then my company conveyor, which does e-commerce and content photography is uh Conveyor, C-O-N-V-Y-R.com. C-O-N-V-Y-R, that's right, yeah. yeah. Cool. Awesome, man. Thank this you for having blast. me. Uh, yeah. I've, I've, Super I mean, fun. For, for, my, for my first podcast, you made this uh, painless and enjoyable. <laughs> Great conversationalist, and um, it's, been, it's been really fun uh, sitting here on the porch, drinking some beers, and having a conversation. And editing out car noises. And editing out car noises. <laughs> Whoop, pause. Just kidding. <laughs> Um, so yeah, well, thank you for having hopefully me. Hopefully, the surf will come up, and uh, we can jump in the water sometime soon. And of course, you're always welcome to come down to San Diego. Let's do it. Thank okay, you for your buddy. time, man. Thanks. As always, major thanks goes to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as the clear audio for the noise cancellation headphones. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And while you're there, if you don't mind rating and even leaving a short review, it helps way more than you think. Please give Standard H a follow on Instagram at Standard H underscore, as well as the podcast page at Standard H underscore podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Standard H podcast in two weeks time. Thanks again for listening.